Welcome to Lady Bits and Leadership, a brave space where women come together to share stories about our bodies, our sexuality, and motherhood. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Vogel, and my mission in life is helping women feel less alone, process their trauma, and build the lives they desire. So if you're ready to join a community of women who have found their voices, who have become liberated from shame and reclaim their power, then you're in the right place, girl. You found us. We're so happy you're here. Now, I knew at some point the conversations would turn heavy, and that's what happened with today's guest, Christina Cummins, a psychologist here in Hilo, Hawaii. Um, I had the privilege of interviewing her, and when asking her about why she became a psychologist and therapist, this story about her sexual assault came out. So for the listeners who are in the car with their kiddos or anyone who does not feel the need or call to listen to a story regarding sexual violence, maybe this episode isn't for you. But for those who are brave enough to listen to this, I think it's incredibly important to share because of a couple reasons. What Christina shares, although her sexual assault may not have been the same as what other people have experienced, the feelings around it, the reactions to it, the thoughts that she had around it are very common. I have now been working in the area of sexual assault prevention, awareness, and adjudication or doing investigations around this. And so I've worked with hundreds of survivors of sexual violence. And what I hear from Christina is very similar to what I hear from others. Now, it's really important for us to just highlight that One in five women in the United States has experienced completed or attempted rape in their lifetime. One in five women, 20% of women. Now this is according to the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. About half of female victims of rape reported being raped by an intimate partner and 40% by an acquaintance. So again, a part of understanding more about sexual violence is helping to break down the stigmas around sexual violence. Oftentimes, what we see in media, and I know things have changed as time has gone on, which is which is good, is that a man jumps out of a bush and attacks a woman and and rapes her. And the fact is, is that for everyone who has experienced sexual violence, it's often much more nuanced than that. Their stories are very different. The person who assaulted them and the situation surrounding it is very different. But the truth is, is that our numbers haven't really changed at all for years and years and years. We are still experiencing extreme violence against women in the United States and beyond, um, but these statistics are mainly focused on women in the United States. And we have to do more to stop it. We have to do more. And it is my sincere belief that by sharing our stories and by helping to educate folks on consent, how to have good sexual communication with a partner, how to identify if someone is too intoxicated to consent, is the huge part of the solution that we're missing. We don't have any type of this education in our K through 12 system. We do have that education available oftentimes at many colleges, but not all of them. And yet most of the people who are growing into adolescence and then adulthood will have sex, but we are not preparing them on how to have sex with consent, how not to rape someone. 
Christina's situation is a bit different. It was it was a very violent assault. Um, this wasn't a, I didn't know that she or he didn't want to have sex with me, which I have investigated in the past before. It was calculated and it was, it was a horrific assault. So just a warning, that's what this is about. At the end of the story, she does come away from it and survive. She survives the assault and through years and years of incredibly hard work and persistence, she now is a thriving therapist with a great business, helping other people work through their traumas. She has a family of her own, but even decades after the assault, still manages through the flashbacks, the PTSD. And so that's another important thing to highlight. We often talk about sexual assault in numbers and statistics, but there's real people with real lives and real consequences that continue for years and years after their assaults. For years! is bullshit. It's bullshit that we live in a country, in a world that still continues to attack women like this. So with that being said, I will let Christina introduce herself. And I do hope that um, even after this incredibly tough intro, that you're still here with us. Because whether you're a survivor of sexual violence or you're not, it is incredibly important to hear her story as there is very likely, given the statistics that we know, one in five women or 20% of women have experienced either an attempted or completed assault in their lifetime. And so you know someone, if you know me, you know a survivor um, of sexual violence and it is important to know what they go through so that we can empathize and be good allies and love on them as much as possible. So without further ado, here's my interview with Christina Cummins. It takes a lot of fortitude and courage to open your own business. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to talk to you about one, how did you get into therapy? What brought you to this field? And two, what has it been like as a female business owner? Let's be real. Um, most therapists get into the business because they are really curious about psychology because things are not going well in their life. Mm -hmm. And to learn about the brain and the mind helps to um, helps them to process what they're experiencing. And that was certainly my case. So um, as many women listeners um, would be able to identify with, <laughs> so I, it's, it's easy to speak in therapy talk. Um, like my ACEs score is really high. <laughs> and Ooh, I, I don't know what that is. What's ACEs? Adverse childhood experiences score. Oh, okay. And when it's so, high, what does that mean when it's high? It means that you have experienced a set of, um, a series of experiences when your brain is still developing as a child. Mm -hmm. And that puts you at risk for all of the things that trauma makes you more likely to um, experience. So it puts you at risk for addiction. It puts you at risk for unhealthy relationships. It puts you at risk for mental health disorders. Even, um, you know, there's even links now between like learning differences, learning disabilities and experiencing these events. So let me like try to stop speaking as a therapist and just speak as like a person. Um, you know, I grew up in a home where um, alcohol was abused and um, there was 
lots of yelling and um, occasionally physical abuse or weapons involved. And we, uh, I, as a child, um, had a lot of somatic complaints. Sorry, the therapy talk goes, you know, it's really hard to turn that off, but I had a lot of physical complaints like um, headaches and stomach aches. Um, And then I considered myself lucky that my parents separated and things like got different so the the yelling wasn't necessarily there but then the poverty came and so that brought about a different set of experiences and um you know as a teenager um there was like again an additional set of experiences being a teenager with like you know a parent that uh, the primary parents stretched too thin, not really able to care for or supervise a teenager. And um, the thing that is hard for me to say right now um, that I, I do want to say as part of this story, the reason, the real reason why I got into therapy um, <laughs> is because of a sexual assault that uh, I was the victim of. And uh, like, I of course didn't know what PTSD was. To, it just felt like going crazy. That's what it feels like. And sorry, Sarah. It's okay. Take your time. As as a child, when you literally, like, you may have heard these terms before, but you really don't know why or what it is, or even that there's a name for a small pin drop type sound happening and having like a huge fear and panic reaction all of the sudden um, you don't know that there is a name for you know uh, extremely intrusive thoughts and feelings as if something was happening again you don't know there's a name for that and so of course I I was a mess just like falling apart at the seams and everyone around me knew it so I was so lucky to be able to engage with someone to, to, to have therapy and to go through that process of learning, learning what was going on first, um, putting names to things. And I think that's why I love speaking as a therapist now. Like it almost like puts that barrier there that allows you to like, it's, it's intellectualizing. It allows that, that distance from emotion. So, you know, you learn the term hypervigilance, you learn the term flashback Um, and going into community college. um, I, I, I couldn't stay in high school. I couldn't do it. Like I, there was no way I could um, continue functioning in a place where um, I knew that this person would potentially uh, be, and it just made life unbearable. So I, my junior year, I stopped going to high school. I dropped out, completed my GED and my senior year, what would have been my senior year of high school, I started at community college. And uh, like with education about psychology, my life just continued to change for the better. I just continued to process and understand and feel comforted by, by knowing even the neurology of trauma. And it was like a no brainer that of course, you know, there's such an interest there. What else would I go to school and learn about? So most people that get into psychology know that you've got to go on to get your master's degree if you want to be able to really make a living. 
So I did. And um, it was amazing. Like all my whole educational experience, just being around people that were interested in psychology and then being taught by a bunch of psychologists and therapists. It just was like such a nurturing and empowering experience. And of course, then I, I got into the working world and to make a long story short, I really got used to working like 60 and 70 hour weeks with multiple jobs to try to pay off student loans. And I realized that um, that was okay when I was not parenting, um, but I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't want that for my child. I didn't want to be the the parent that like is you know sometimes able to say goodnight to them or sometimes they're asleep already by the time I get home and then say good morning and then be off on their way as they go to school and I go to work. So I I knew that I needed to do something different and step out on my own into private practice. And that's what I did. There is so much that I want to ask you, but before I okay. do, I just want to just say thank you so much for being willing to share that story. You know, I think a huge part of why I wanted to start this podcast in general is to help share the stories that women experience that often bring so much confusion and shame for them around Mm -hmm. their worth and their value and their power. And as you mentioned, I mean, women, one in six women, one in six women are either victim survivors of attempted or completed rape, one in six women. And that's a recent stat. That is too many women. Yeah. And I think what you talked about is one, so such a a powerful topic to say, when you started learning the terms, when you started learning that what you were experiencing in your body and emotionally and in your mind And you gave words to those things. And then on top of that, not only defined it, but learned how the brain copes with incredible trauma. I can only imagine, right? Because I I myself have gone through sexual assault. And when I learned about that, what I experienced was rape. It was like, I felt like I could breathe a little bit more. I felt like it was something that happened to me rather than something that I caused to myself. When I learned about intoxication to the point of incapacitation, it wasn't, I got drunk. So I brought on sexual assault. It was, I was too drunk to give consent and someone had sex with me, thereby raping me. That knowledge is often absent for our young people. And it's incredibly detrimental for us not to have these conversations about power, consent, violence, rape, trauma, and how to help them move through this. So I just want to thank you for, for sharing that with us. Um, Yeah. It's really still difficult to talk about. And, and I think part of that is that even though I got used to talking about it quite a bit, going through like years, literally years of therapy, like five years of therapy straight for that specifically, it's now, cause that happened when I was a teenager. So now it's been 20 years since it happened and probably 15 years since I've really, really talked about it as opposed to just like if someone asks or says something blatantly, yes, um, you know, I can talk in a very superficial way about it. Um, there's been like times throughout the years where things 
additional things have happened that have been that have stirred up emotions from and and feelings of being like very unsafe from then where I had the opportunity to to talk about it in therapy again but really talking about it outside of the therapy room outside of that session is something that you know I really I have not done since I was a teenager who got how did you get to the point where you entered therapy? Was there someone who encouraged it or did you get into a situation where it was mandated? I was so, so lucky um, that, you know, with everything that was going on with our lives, um, my mom did have health insurance and we were able, like, it was, it was very clear that I needed therapy and I also wanted therapy. So we, she helped me to obtain the therapy. And in the beginning years, even like brought me to therapy until I was able to, to drive because like, I can't believe like yeah, thinking about like, oh my God, I was such a baby. I wasn't even able to drive when this happened. You were 15. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I remember the therapist. He's, he's amazing. I, every once in a while, I'll still call and like, just leave a voicemail for him. Like, I don't want him to call back. I don't want to take any of his time. It's like, Hey, this just happened. It's amazing. I'll call you again in five years and let you know what's up. Like just, he was so wow. amazing. I never thought to do that to just, I mean, because other than therapists, there are people, mentors, coaches, friends in people's lives that make such a difference when someone's yeah. going through a traumatic situation. And the fact that yeah. you can even leave him a voice memo or a voicemail just to say, I don't even expect or want necessarily a call back. I just want to tell you that I'm thriving and that I think about you and the work that you helped me do That's and exactly the way that it. you changed my life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So like when there's milestones, I often think of him and how like, I, I really do believe if he was not a part of my life, things would have been a lot different for me. It would have really been easy to dive kind of headfirst into addiction to just like stop, stop the pain. And, and I think one of the reasons why I call and say like every few years, like, Hey, things are going great. And this is what's happening is because like, he didn't really get to see a ton of progress. Those five years that I was working with him consistently, I was a mess basically throughout that entire time. Now I was generally a functional mess. You know, I was going to school generally maintaining jobs, like generally, you know, and, you know, things of that nature, like kind of establishing myself in those adult, like emerging adulthood years. But I, I think one of those, the, the biggest reason why I call is to kind of, I guess, give him the reward that he, of like your, your work really mattered that he was never able to see them because he certainly didn't see any outcomes, any really significant outcomes through that five years. I have to imagine it warms his heart and keeps his fire going to continue to serve others. And it's, and it's amazing that although this happened to you, that you were able to not only find a sense of healing and power through this experience, but also now do what he did. Now you do for other people. Yeah, I do. And I'll say that while many of my clients have had past experiences with sexual assault, I don't think that even now I could work with someone that was like coming to me as a new person saying I was just sexually assaulted and I need to process this. I would not be the therapist that would be right for them because my emotions are still so there with this. There would be too much of me in that, in those emotions and not enough of 
me just reflecting them. While I do do that work in some in some capacity, when it comes down to like the immediate aftermath and trauma work associated with it, I know my limits and know that that's not that's not the work that I am cut out to do. I wanted to ask about how you ended up telling your mother because she was the oh. one she was the one that had encouraged you to go to therapy or, or and drove you to therapy. I mean, many women that I work with in my job and then with my own story don't even either don't realize that what happened to them was actually considered, you know, sexual assault, sexual violence or there's just so much shame around what happened to them that they just hold it inside because they don't want to deal with the perception of stigma or the perception that they, again, are at fault for some in some way. They don't want to deal with, with that. And so they say, well, I'll just box it up and I'll just put this away. How did you come to the point where you were talking to your mother about it? And was she the first person you told? This is, it kind of, you get into the nitty gritty of the story through answering that question. Do you, do you want to go there? I think so. Yeah, okay. let's do it. So part of the shame, part of my shame with this story is that this was, this happened in my home. Um, the perpetrator was a friend's older brother happened to be dating another friend of mine. I just like knew him by association, basically. Um, he and I had never hung out by ourselves or anything prior to this happening. On this particular evening, he knocked on my door and um, my mom was upstairs sleeping. He came in and you know, he, he was 18, but so he still shouldn't have been drinking, but he was, he was drunk. And that's like the, that's the lifestyle that I was living. You know, um, we were doing a lot of drinking and smoking and things like that. Um, and, uh, the next morning he was actually, um, passed out in the basement when my mom woke up, I had been throwing up upstairs. I was not under the influencer. I didn't, I wasn't out drinking with him. He didn't bring any alcohol with me, but just the experience of everything. I was, it made me sick to my stomach when it was finally over. And part of the shame is that I never like screamed. I never like tried to wake my mom up throughout it um, because I just froze. Like I, I know that now, like I know that I was in a situation, like I had some um, pretty, gnarly injuries. Like I know that there was that trauma reaction of not being able to really scream and just being in shock and being in like freeze. And one of the most difficult parts and most difficult memories about it was um, when I did, when I did try to like get away and being so strong and being able to hold me down, like it was nothing, it was nothing. And him saying, if you just stay still, this will go faster for the both of us. I just shut down. Like, really, I just stopped fighting in the morning. Like, so throughout the, the early morning hours, he like passed out somewhere in the basement, I think. But his shoes were by the front door. And my mom came down and saw the shoes and started, you know, like yelling and screaming, like, who is here? Like, what were you doing? You know, um, in this, like, my teenage daughter has had a boy over through the night. I think I was like pretty obviously a mess and I was, there was blood, you know, like there was, 
it was not. Once I said, no, I didn't, I didn't want this. Then like, it, like it was pretty clear to her from like the scene that we need to get this person out of the house and call the police. And so she did, she called the police and that experience was horrifying. They came to my house. They did not make me go to the police station and they had me write a summary of what had happened. And I often think about that summary and think like, man, I wonder what's in that. I wonder, I wonder if I could get that. I wonder if it would be helpful for me to read that again, or if it would just be re-traumatizing. And um, they chastised me at one point saying, I took it as chastising, um, saying, you know, if we ever see your little boyfriend around here again, we're going to arrest him no matter what he's doing. And I'm thinking like, please, like, please, yes, arrest. Why are you calling him my little boyfriend? Why? Um, and I remember just feeling like just so in such intense shame as a result of him, of that, this police officer calling him my little boyfriend and talking to me of like, if we ever see him around here again. So I was a mess from moment one real mess. Like we, then we went to the doctors and got a rape kit. And, um, I had like injuries on, um, one of my feet because it got jammed under the couch and he, he wouldn't let me move. So, um, there was just, um, like open cuts wounds along like the top of my toes, just horrible bruising on my thighs and like vaginal swelling, just like really horrendous kinds of trauma. Uh, physical trauma. I couldn't stay at my house. You know, like I had that, thank goodness. I had that like healthy friend, that healthy family, you know, the one that was like not fucked up. And they, yeah, I stayed with my friend and her mom and thank God, because he came looking for me two nights later, he broke into my house. He climbed up on the second story, kicked in the, that we had like a window fan, kicked in the window fan to my bedroom. I wasn't there. He couldn't find me. And this dude went through the house, found my little brother, woke him up in the middle of the night. So a stranger woke up my brother in the middle of the night. My brother was 10 at the time asking him where I was looking for me. And of course, like that did like stir things up. And my mom called the police again. And they said that there is no breaking and entry laws. So that like, it wasn't actually against the law what he did by like entering the home through the second story window. I can't imagine that that is true, but that's what they told my mom at the time. And as a child, I just accepted that, lived the rest of my life in that house in fear. So he was never arrested? No. Wow. I think that a lot of women that I've worked with don't even want to go through the process of reporting to the police of going to the hospital and doing the sexual assault examination because of stories like yours that we hear over and over and over again, there is no justice. And honestly, I've, I've worked with women who have gone through at least just the administrative process at the university, um, you know, to determine whether or not, when they bring allegations forward, is it more likely than not that this person did sexually assault them, did rape them? And 
the great mis narrative, the the lie is that, and I'll, I'll, I reference women a lot because I mostly work with women because women tend to be the survivors of sexual violence, statistically speaking. And in my practice, even going through the process, even if they're found responsible, they're still left with dealing with that trauma. They're still left to pick up the pieces years later. I mean, we're talking your case was 15 to 20 years ago and you are still picking up the pieces. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is not like someone stole your wallet. (laughs) It is not like someone graffitied your house. This is a trauma that sticks with women and affects the trajectory. (laughs) This is your body. This is your sense of safety. This is the ultimate violation. And it affects the trajectory of how you view yourself, how you view other intimate relationships. It's something that, I mean, you're married now with two children. I have to imagine in some ways it comes up even with with a loving partner, someone who loves and respects you. Right. Because I still have as have an exaggerated um, startle response. Like I, I get scared. I still react in a more fearful amygdala driven way than the average person. So within a relationship, you know, like expression, normal expressions, which would, I would say like, you know, quote unquote, normal, normal expressions of a range of emotions can produce a fear response in me um, when it's when it's directed toward me, towards me, especially if there's like anger involved. And um, that affects relationships because anger is a is a feeling and emotion that people need to express sometimes. And it doesn't necessarily mean violent, but that connection, that that lack of safety, that fear response is imprinted in my brain in a way that it's very hard to undo. I do believe that I will get there, but yeah, I have, um, with the exception of, you know, a few months or maybe a year here or there, I've basically been in therapy fairly, fairly consistently, consistently since, since I was raped. It probably was really hard to get to that point. Just in the belief that, Someday I won't have this fear response. I have to imagine that for a long, long time, you might've thought this is just going to be the rest of my life forever. This is me as opposed to this is a reaction that my brain has, has created in order to protect itself from potential death. This is a reaction, a um, survival mechanism forever it was this is just me this is just how I am and that's not that is not true for women who might be coming to the realization that maybe they've had an experience similar to this what would be your it sounds so weird to say like words of advice but what would you tell them as someone who has been on this journey of healing of becoming whole again I think I would say that for a lot of people these comforting things that feel good in the moment are really like false. 
So I don't know for any given person, it's a different thing, but whether it's um, food, alcohol, drugs, those things that give you that temporary relief are not actually your friend. They're, they compound the issue and can make it more difficult for your brain to heal. And I wish I would have known that earlier. How did you find yourself building a sense of power again? Because I think- Education. Education. Yeah. Like easy answer, easiest question you asked all day. (laughs) Education. For me, I just needed to know the, the philosophical concepts in psychology and the biological realities of how the brain works. And those two things combined gave me the ability to say like, okay, I know what's going on right now. I know what's happening. And not that I can necessarily stop it right now, which therapy helped, but the understanding gave me a sense of control. I really hope that, you know, again, that this podcast can help to be that source of education, at least the start, right? I've worked with survivors of sexual violence now, like for my full-time job for five years, but I'm still learning. And I think if this can just be a spark to get people to become a little more aware about maybe what they experienced might be this, and maybe they could see a therapist, or maybe they could talk to a trusted friend or family member. I mean, at least with therapists, it's completely confidential. Right. You know, right. And talking to a therapist that really, that, you know, hopefully specializes in this can make all the difference in the world. Generally, when we talk about like what we would want, if I, if I put my therapist hat on, if someone came to me and said, I was just sexually assaulted, I would say, okay, here's what we want to do. We want to get you to a crisis center, to a women's crisis center that focuses just on the sexual assault. And you would do that work for like three months. They do like the immediate after aftermath results. And you want someone that specializes in that. Because if you do decide to bring up charges, you don't want to ever have um, the defense to be able to say, well, the therapist wasn't a specialist and therefore may have influenced the um, supposed victim. And this story is not credible anymore. Wow. That happens like way more than we want to think about that someone goes to therapy and because the therapist isn't a specialist, it can be used against the victim. In an ideal world, we would all have amazing access to like a women's crisis center where you would go for that immediate after like traumatic aftermath, and then you would transition to a long-term therapist and be able to be in it for the long run. Something like 10, 12 years after the fact, I had instances of harassment that just destroyed me, brought me, felt like I was right back to where I was as a teenager. I, you know, I was, I'm grateful that I had the intellectual knowledge that that could happen and that you have to address it. Luckily, it didn't take all those years to get back and not at all. It took just a couple months to get back to my like current baseline. So I guess the, those, the advice goes on, you know, so the advice is to not seek out 
any of those temporary means, those feel-good means of dealing with it, and that if at all possible, seek out that that crisis counseling. I don't want to end our time together without talking about your new project, something that you have cooking up that you're super excited about, that you and I have a mutual passion for, other than empowering women, is leadership and leadership coaching. You are a leadership coach for for a healthcare industry partner and are starting your journey to branch out your work outside of therapy and into coaching. I am, yeah. So we have been... My, myself and my little team that we've got going, we are doing um, leadership on the individual level and leadership in healthcare industry. So leadership on the individual level is looking like um, one-on-ones with individuals that are trying to take control, take lead of their own lives, their own work lives. We have a community that is um, continuing to grow, which is awesome. We meet weekly to share with each other uh, what we've accomplished for the week and what we've got to accomplish for the upcoming week, challenges that we've faced, successes, so that we can really hold each other accountable to meeting our goals because we we have got, nobody's going to meet it for us. We've got to do this. Then we have got healthcare leadership programs. So we work within healthcare, the healthcare industry with individual organizations. And then within that, we work with a set of leaders over a six month period of time. Those up and coming leaders get classes, coaching, all about how to increase their effectiveness in their leadership positions, reducing turnover, increasing their goals being met, because that's what this leadership angle is. It's about getting our goals met, whether you're talking about yourself, you're talking about your organization. That's where our focus is. I love it. And I know that you and I talked before the podcast about the particular group that you're working with and your connection with them. And I would love for you to share with everyone who they are, why you're so connected with them, what their mission is and what you hope to to bring. Uh, A wonderful organization out of Newark, New Jersey, the AIDS Resource Foundation for Children. They support people living with HIV in Newark. And their organization is just what every organization should be. They empower their community. They hire from the community. They hire the population that they want to serve. They embody what being a nonprofit social justice organization should be. Um, Their interim CEO, Annie Chen, has been a mentor of mine. And the opportunity came about that I was able to, in any small way, give back to this organization. I jumped on it. And we are all so excited to launch their start next month in the healthcare leadership program. I love that they have created that space to really cultivate the people that are there, to retain the people that are there, to build up the capacity and the knowledge of those who are dedicated to this amazing organization. Yeah. And they've got a a lot of very dedicated employees that are mission driven. 
It's exactly the organization that we want to be working with. They're progressive and mission-driven. I love it. Can you tell us when people seek out your individual counseling for wanting to be better leaders, is there a pattern of specific things that people and specifically women tend to struggle with when they are, when they know that they want to grow as a leader, but they're really struggling with any patterns that are emerging for you in your work so far? Yeah, they're really struggling with people following through. Oh, they're really struggling with coming across strong, but not as a bitch. Um, They're really struggling with balancing work and life. Um, They want to be able to put 50 hours into work as an executive, as a director. And there's a lot of guilt associated with that. Yeah. When 50 hours a week, it is a lot and it's average for that level. It really is. So there's like the, the internal stuff, there's the communication stuff, and then there's the societal stuff that we have to learn to let go and throw out the window. And that's really, that's a big pattern that I'm seeing that there's like, there's multiple levels. People are generally coming to me having multiple levels of discord taking place. And that's what's prompting them to actually reach out. It's not just one thing, but it's this inward, it's this communication and direct team stuff. And then it's the the larger societal level stigmas. Absolutely. Especially for women in general, but I know being a mother too now, um, as a, for a two-year-old, there's even more like guilt around being a working mom, trying to do it all. And for me in particular, negotiating with my partner, who's incredibly willing to do, to pick up 50, 50 and more when needed, because he knows that we kind of both go through our busy periods and our slower periods. But I think that sense of like, I don't even want to ask because I should be able to just do it all. Yeah. Yeah. That, that unlearning that we're often programmed for in so many ways is, is the work. It is. And it's very hard work and you have to do it over and over and over again. You don't just learn it once and then it's over. It's done. It's complete. You, you learn it and then you rediscover it next year, next season at the kids festival time when you really want to be working and finishing this project. And, you know, your little guy's got a, a dance that he's doing at school, you know, something like that. And you have to like relearn that negotiation. It's, it's kind of, I think it's work that's never done similar to my trauma work. Oh, well, I so appreciate to just sharing your story. It takes so much bravery, so much courage, self-assuredness, and just, it takes so much heart to come on here and talk about it. And I can just only hope that there are people who listen to this that see that it is possible to experience incredible trauma, whether it's sexual trauma or otherwise, find the resources that are available in the community, find the people who will 
get you to those appointments, who will, who will love you unconditionally throughout this and hopefully find an epic therapist like the one you had and that you did that that you survived. I think that's why we, you know, oftentimes in our field of work do talk about people being survivors because you did, you survived and you're still surviving today. And you are, you've created a family, you've created a thriving practice. You're helping people grow in their self-esteem, their self-confidence. You're incredible. You really are. I, I, I just, thank you. How do they get in touch with you? My website. Okay. So it's my last name, CumminsCounseling.com. Okay. We'll link to it in the show notes for sure. Great. All right. Thank you so much, Christina, for everything. Thank you. Yes. And I can't wait to hear more about where the leadership journey takes you and takes Uh all of your students. It's going to be amazing. Wow. Thank you, Christina. Thank you. Thank you so much for being brave enough and bold enough to sharing to share your story with us. I know that wasn't an easy episode for our listeners to hear. It certainly wasn't easy for Christina to to share, but I think she knew that by sharing this story, maybe just maybe it'll resonate with someone out there who is experienced a sexual assault who may be grappling with the thoughts that go on in one's head after a significant trauma or who may want to share their story too. When I asked her about building a sense of power again, how did she get that back? For her, it was all about education. She, it was easier for her to heal when she understood the psychological and biological realities of trauma. As she said, that's, that's really what led her into her field of being a therapist now. And so I would encourage any of those folks out there who are struggling to understand more about what they or loved ones of theirs have experienced, start with just looking up sexual assault resources. I assure you, the internet is chock full of great places to gain information that is research-based and that is inclusive and non-judgmental. I personally like RAIN, R-A-I-N-N.org. They have a ton of information. In fact, if you are someone who feels like you've experienced a sexual assault, they have the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-HOPE. H-O-P-E or 4673. Again, that's 1-800-656-4673. They have counselors on call who are confidential who can talk to you about whatever questions you might have, right? If you're thinking about developing a plan to disclose your experience with sexual violence to a loved one, a partner, they can help you with that. If you're trying to understand if what you experienced was sexual violence, they can help you with that. If you are experiencing suicidality due to your sexual assault, or you want options on how to move forward, they can help you with all of that. So that's a great place to start. For those who have been told by loved ones that they are a victim or survivor of sexual violence, just a couple things to remember. It took a lot for them to share that with you, right? You have obviously built a deep and close enough relationship for them to say those things to you. It takes a lot of courage for someone to 
take a deep breath and say it out loud. So the best responses you can give them would be, I believe you. It's not your fault. You're not alone. I'm sorry this happened. I care about you and I'm here to listen or help in any way I can. They've taken that first step to tell you what happened to them. Now as a friend or a lover or a parent, now it's your turn to support them. And whatever they decide to do, whether it's reported to the police or go to therapy or a combination of any of those, maybe not do anything at all at this point, is to support them, right? So I'm just, again, so grateful to Christina for sharing her story. Thank you, Christina Mahalo. If you um, know someone in need, again, please feel free to share with them the National Sexual Assault Hotline, 1-800-656-4673. And with that, we close this episode of Lady Bits and Leadership.